Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversation. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Principle of Charity aims to burst our filter bubble and our tendency to righteous anger. Our topic today is, should we fight climate change? or adapt to its inevitability. Emil, tell us a little bit more about it. Thanks so much, Lloyd. So should we fight climate change or adapt to its inevitability? As you can see, we're not here to discuss whether climate change is real or not. It's real and it's bad. We're here to ask a much edgier question. And we know that a lot of damage has already been done and we know how hard it's gonna to be to truly stop CO2 emissions in time to avert disaster. So rather than just fight it, should we not instead take the catastrophic potential more seriously and start a deep process of adaptation? In 2018, Professor Jem Bendel released a paper that launched the small but growing movement called Deep Adaptation. Deep Adaptation sees a social collapse due to climate change as inevitable. It still sees mitigation, that is fighting climate change, as key, but it wants to turn our attention to the very real possibility that things won't be okay inviting us to face this trauma head on. This involves embracing loss and grief for a world and a way of life that will no longer be the same. At the same time, it sees opportunities for personal and societal transformation on this journey. And we're fortunate to have Alan Heeks here, a writer who focuses on resilience and climate change and who's a central part of the deep adaptation movement. We also have Dr. Rebecca Huntley with us, one of Australia's leading social researchers, who's recently been born again, dropping her entire career to focus on the all-consuming threat of climate change. Rebecca's book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, is a clarion call to action. But it does so in such an original way. Instead of bombarding us with facts, it shines a light at our emotional responses to this threat. It looks at how we can best use and manage these emotions, whether you know fear, denial, despair, hope, love, etc., to galvanize, galvanize us and others into action. Both Rebecca and Alan are great guides as we look at our emo emotional responses to climate change, but they come with very different attitudes. Rebecca challenges us to act, Alan to adapt. Welcome, Rebecca and Alan. Hi. Thank you. I'd like to maybe start with you, Rebecca. Uh, what got you hooked on the subject? Uh, well, there was kind of two things that got me hooked on it. The first, professionally, what got me hooked on it was um, the federal election loss in Australia in 2019. Right. So it was a really crushing defeat for anybody who was hoping the end of a conservative government and action on climate. Um, and uh, as a social researcher, we saw all the polling look like that we were probably going, the Labor Party was probably going to win. I've been involved in Labor politics for a long time. And we lost. And I realised at that moment we needed far more sophisticated, precise tools, not just for political polling, but for understanding why people concern about climate change was not translating to their voting behaviour. Right. right. So I just kind of thought I need to have get a really much broader, deeper, more nuanced understanding of why people respond the way they do to climate change mm. emotionally. Ellen, how about you? What got you hooked onto the subject? It's been quite a long journey for me. Uh, I mean, I, I've been involved in uh, campaigning and working on environmental sustainability frankly, for a long time. I, mm. I go back to uh, working with Jonathan Porritt in the 1990s. And, and so I've been trying to wrestle with how we get really fundamental change for a long time. Right. Um, the more recent chapter, I suppose in a way for me, it's partly about, you know, I'm, I'm a generation older, I would suspect, than Rebecca. So it's actually, you know, my first grandchild was born nearly eight years ago. And 
I started to realize <clears throat> that I was glad I'm the age I am, that I, I don't want to be around to face what my grandchildren are going to have to face when they're adults. And I'm really horrified to feel that. Um, so I've been working with resilience and climate change issues specifically for probably about six or seven years. And at the time that Jen Bendel's paper came out in 2018, I was writing a very eloquent um, thinks piece called um, Exploring Super Resilience. And I was trying to articulate the fact that we needed a quantum step in resilience because of the dramatic change in the pressures we're facing. Yeah. And when Jen's paper came out, I thought, this is it. You know, deep adaptation and the framework that he set is what I'd been struggling to articulate. And he did it a lot better. So that, that's really what led me to get involved in, in working with him. Fantastic. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's get on to chapter one, where we actually explore the different uh, conversations between the two of you and, and, and your particular views. Uh, Emil, over to you. Thank you. Okay, well, why don't we start with you, Rebecca? Um, take us through what do you see the main points that uh, you know, support the view that we need to take action and fight climate change now? Well, I think there's various ways you can say you can kind of frame the need for action. The first is a profoundly ethical one, okay? So if you have decided to bring children into the world or, you know, I've got to know, I mean, you know, maybe I wouldn't have brought children into the world <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd read all the science, but they're here, right? And I have an obligation to my kids, to my family members and to my community to continue to act and not in any way to feed a kind of narrative that the game is over. Right, so that's the first thing. I have an ethical responsibility. Hope is hope is basically a choice, right? It's basically an ethical choice to continue to hope that it's going to be, that you've got a chance to even the odds. Not a kind of Pollyanna-ish hope that, you know, if everybody puts a solar panel on their house, it's all going to be fine. But but you need to be, you need to kind of engage with an active hope, a kind of almost defiant hope when you deal with climate change. So there's an ethical question. There's also a practical question. Even though I've only spent the last three or four years with a really, you know, um, intensive focus on climate change, I've spent 20 years listening to Australians talk about um, how they feel about things. And I can tell you what motivates them and what doesn't. <laughs> and I can tell you saying, it's really, really, really going to be bad and there's probably nothing we can do about it. Um, even if we equip them with all of Alan's, I'm, I imagine, and terrific skills to do that. So I think there's a practical solution. It's spent an enormous amount of time putting messages about climate change in front of different kinds of audiences and working out what they will accept and what they won't accept. But more importantly, what we have to tell them to get them to do the things we want them to do. And often... The truth, the really fully unvarnished truth does not work with them. <laughs> it doesn't work. You get absolute and complete and total resistance. In fact, the older I get, the more I realise how absolutely unique it is when somebody's prepared to face the truth and act according to it. It's very hard. Most of us put up a lot of psychological and cognitive barriers to avoid it. So one is ethical and one is practical and one is selfish I would rather be involved in lots and lots of action to man manage my own anxiety about it than to sit back. That's great, Rebecca. And I think, and we're going to really get into some of the different emotions because you've become a, an, a bit of an expert in the emotional responses to trauma and climate change and how we best galvanize them. So we can get into some of them in more specifics. But over to you, Alan, why should we spend our energy on deep adaptation and not fighting? Well, I mean, there's a there's a basic point here that Jem and all the people I know in deep adaptation are not saying don't fight uh, climate change, don't protest. They're saying do protest. I mean, Jem was a leading figure in the Extinction Rebellion protests in London, for example. So it, it's not at all about not protesting and not doing our utmost to mitigate climate change. But what Jem felt, and I really share his view, is that um, when he started to, to talk about deep adaptation in 2018, there was a real sense that people were not actually taking the threat seriously enough. People still thought that we could actually mitigate our way out of the climate crisis and that it was not going to become, to some degree, catastrophic. We can really debate how bad it's going to be. I mean, I, I personally do not accept Jem's view that societies are going to collapse 
but I think we are in for major disruption. And I think that where there's a real philosophical difference between Rebecca and myself and deep adaptation and what Rebecca is, is advocating is the pros and cons of telling it like it is or not. Um, I mean, Jem quotes quite a lot of evidence, but it's more from Europe uh, than from Australia to suggest that a lot of people do respond positively to telling it like it is and the bad news. So, you know, that's, I think, where some of the debate today is going to need to be. Um, is And it, it's, right. it may be that it's different strokes for different folks. There's a question about whether we can do both at the same time, which which I'd like to get in a little into a little bit later. Like, can we sort of have our cake and eat it? And But there is something, Rebecca, you actually quoted Jim Bendel in your book where he said, and this is a question for you, Alan, Bendel said, discussing progress in the health and safety policies with the captain of the Titanic as it sank would not be a sensible use of time. So I wondered, are we on the Titanic as it sinks or is a better metaphor, and maybe a metaphor that, that Rebecca, you may use, is that we're on a ship that's under attack from an enemy and we need to focus on fighting for our lives and leave this sort of processing and navel-gazing and therapy of post-traumatic stress to when the war is over? I, I, I think, I would have to say, I don't think the Titanic is a helpful metaphor. Right. Um, it's not that we're going to, you know, the ship is going to sink and we're just being left as drowning individuals. It, it's more like... Um, you know, we're in a, a, a town in an earthquake zone where parts of the, the structure are going to collapse and we're going to have to reconstruct it a bit like, you know, Haiti or Hurricane Katrina. Um, so I one of the difficulties here is that having read quite a lot of the sort of forecasts about collapse, nobody can give you a specific that this is how it's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. Um, and one of the big things I take out of COVID is that in order to prepare for the kind of disruptions that are coming up, we're going to have to act on faith or trust or anticipation, because that's very obviously what we all fail to do with COVID. And, you know, the, the, the person in the street didn't know about COVID, but it's absolutely clear that a lot of major governments around the world had forecasts from their scientific advisors that there is a high risk of a pandemic. Here's what you could do. Here's the billions of dollars it would cost to do it. Did anybody do it? Almost mm. nobody did. And and so one of my, where I feel a sense of urgency is, to me, COVID is a massive warning about the shape of things to come. And I don't yet see governments or people in general learning from it. I think what we should just do very quickly, Rebecca, if you could just lead this, is just touch on for our audience, what are the likely effects of climate change? You know, we can look at the range, but what are we talking about here? What's going to happen? Oh, wow. Well, there are the, to use um, Chaney, choose Dick Chinese words, there are the known knowns and the unknown knowns and the known unknowns, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I've just got to preface this with saying that I'm um, I'm not a natural scientist, I'm a social scientist, but obviously going into this, I thought I better read a whole lot of climate science to get a, get ahead of it. And I, and I imagine Alan's like this as well. You read it every couple of months just to see, yep, that's still there, that's still bad, <laughs> I'm just going to put that down, do something else. We're talking about, and this is why I think global warming, even though um, climate change is criticised as a term, I think the thing that global warming, the term really works, is, an, is that it actually talks about total and utter um, disruption of the natural world so some of it can mean things are hot and some of them can mean things are cold some of them can mean that it's actually wetter than you expect all of a sudden and then dry so more droughts more you know all the kinds of things that all the kinds of temperature extreme weather events um, as well as coastal erosion and with that of course comes disruption to food systems and disruption to all the other human systems that surround it. So even mm. even basic things like I was reading the other day about the impact of climate change on food security, um, which even includes making it difficult to get food from one place to the other, not just to grow it, um, but also the sustainability of towns that really rely on, on, on um, you know, food production, as well as things like famines, which can also lead to a whole lot of social disruption. And then, of course, you've got health and mental health questions. So it, there, I've been looking at very kind of spaghetti maps that all talk about that what that disruption means. And of course, it can mean disruption to the, um, you know, to the money markets, to um, to the kinds of um, forms of, of uh, particularly advanced democracies that have mm. always tended to work in climates that aren't 
you know, aren't quite um, as disruptive as they are. So that's some of them. Yeah, great. Mm. I mean, I guess there's a question, because there is a range of possibilities here as we Mm. talk about the known knowns, the unknown knowns, and we know that even if we achieve these miraculous targets of zero emissions by 2050 Mm. or 2060, a lot of damage has already been done. But it seems, Alan, that, that deep adaptation does focus on the more of the worst case scenario. I mean, what what is the reasonable response here to something which could be incredibly catastrophic or could be just really quite bad? Do we is is it responsible to focus on the reasonable worst case or on the middle case or you know how how do you deal with the risk of this? And why have you chosen to go into the uh, more extreme version? Well, you know, within deep adaptation, there's a spectrum even within it about how bad you look. And I said, I I. I differ from Jem, who says uh, societal collapse is certain within 10 years. I think that's a really extreme statement. I think it's an excessively alarming statement. And it's one which I've been pressing him to validate ever since I've been involved. And he still hasn't done so. So, you know, my view is more what I think you'd call a sort of reasonable worst case. And Mm. I've looked at other people's views on this as well as Jem. But I do think uh, I mean, the points that Rebecca talked about are absolutely the ones that I would share. And and where I do agree with Jem is that he's saying he believes that the biggest source of disruption is likely to be food security. Because the point about that is that you have a weather disaster in two or three countries, particularly what are called the breadbasket countries that produce staple crops of the world, then actually you don't need weather disasters all over the world to have major security, food security mm-hmm. problems all over the world. Well, let's get into the core of this, Alan. I mean, I think, you know, even the way I read Jem's paper, he he's indicating that even if it's not inevitable, it's still a strong enough possibility that we we should be taking deep adaptation seriously or not, and that so many people are are, are focused on the hope side of things that it's leaving this this other part of 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 human potential sort of unexplored. What does deep adaptation? suggests we do. To me, the first fundamental point is that we we have to actually find a way of facing and dealing with and living with really intense emotions like fear, grief, anger, despair. And that until we actually can face those, we're to some degree paralyzed, we're in denial, we can't act in any kind of authentic way because we're kind of overwhelmed by emotions that we're not facing. And um, the other thing I value in what Jem says is that he believes that that process of facing those emotions is something that we really need to try and do collectively. It's like when we're on our own at home with all those feelings, we think, I'm crazy. You know, the world out there appears to be normal. I'm out of line. Um, it's, it's by being with other people and having those feelings witnessed and accepted as normal by other people that we start to get a sense that I'm not weird and I'm not alone and that I can start to act. So that that really is the, the fundamental of deep adaptation as I see it. And then moving on from that and learning to live with those feelings and start to act positively despite them, what Jem is then offering is a number of ways of looking at, if you like, reconstructing our, our lives and our, our communities and societies to, to live with and grow grow through large amounts of, of turbulence, disruption, and so on. Mm. And, um, you know, you may be familiar with the He talked about four hours. So it starts yes. with resilience. We, yeah. have, we need much higher levels of personal and community resilience. Relinquishment. What, do, what does he mean by resilience? I know there's a sort of specific meaning. And, and, and what are some examples of being re- resilient? How are we not resilient? Well, I, the first part of it is very much what I was saying about living with difficult emotions, not stuffing them away, not denying them, actually facing the the, the extreme challenge that, that we're all in and that's going to get worse in the future. So that's a, a fundamental is about um, emotional resilience. And we can then look at what you might call physical resilience, which overlaps with what is sometimes called prepping. So, you know, a whole load of issues around the likelihood of water supplies getting disrupted, power supplies, food supplies. So there's a kind of physical resilience uh, aspects to it and and creating a society which can absorb that sort of shock but not you know yes. disintegrate yeah uh, and i mean what what jem and most people in deep adaptation emphasize is that the local community 
the physical local community is going to come become very important because you like to get a breakdown in these very you know intricate networks of supply that we're all dependent on at the moment. So the second one is relinquishment. He's saying we have to accept that there are things we're going to have to give up. You know, have to give up aspects of our lifestyle, air travel, some of the imported food we like to eat, uh, probably the, the the level of standard living that we are expecting. There's a whole load of things that we're going to have to relinquish. And if we can do that in a voluntary sense, a bit like the Buddhists talk about voluntary simplicity, we can start to set a role model for people who are just saying, what the hell's going on here? Mm. So there's also a kind of you know, role modeling thing going on. Um, the third one is restoration. I find this one very interesting because he's really saying that as we go through this process of disruption, there are things we have to value that we have to put back in place. And I would say that local community is a great example of that. Certainly in the UK over the last 15, 20 years, I've seen a lot more, you know, people are uh, networked online and, and physical community has become less significant for most people. Mm. They don't know their local communities in the same way. So restoring that sense of physical local connection would be an example and, and restoring the connection with the land. Um, you know, I'm involved in a, a project in my hometown in, in England around food security. And one of the big things we're trying to do is encourage people to start growing more of their own food and to encourage new growers in our communities start producing our own vegetables rather than importing them from Spain or wherever. So so there's a lot to restoration. And, and I hope you can also see that there's a lot that's constructive about this rather than it's all just about, you know, accepting that we're all going to die. It's not at all like yes. that. Yes, it seems to be it's not a doomer philosophy. It is one where, you know, you, you need to face and accept the darkest potential in order to find um, some shoots on the other side. It is. But what I would add is that what I notice if I look at deep adaptation social media is that sadly the, the, the deep adaptation message does attract the, the doomers. So you will find some very doom-laden stuff going on, on on social media which could mislead you about what Jem is actually advocating. Um, so the last of the four is reconciliation. I think this is really crucial as well. He's saying, you know, we're at a time where clearly there's a lot of othering, a lot of blaming, a lot of polarization um, politically and, you know, racially, you name it, that, that in, in a time when we're all under pressure and that risk is high, we have to take the initiative to try and find reconciliation, and understanding and cooperation, even with people who appear to be quite hostile to us. That is, that's great. That's great. And I, I, I want to come back to some of the questions around um, why we find it, it really difficult in our society to sort of look into the, into the darkness and uh, mm. in, in a sort of hopeful way. But I want to ask you, Rebecca, because it was you who suggested um, the deep adaptation movement to me um, as the most interesting counterpoint view um, on, on climate change. But yet sort of rereading your book, you know, you look, your entire book looks at emotional responses to climate change through the lens of action and how we can use our emotions to galvanize us to save the world. Why didn't you put more weight on acceptance and emotions that are needed there? Um, look, I did recommend deep adaptation because had we found a doomer, I would have just been, I just would have yelled at him for an hour because yeah. I think there's, there is a self-indulgent and weirdly amongst doomers, a kind of weird macho, you know, bring on the apocalypse so that I can, you know, start to collect wives and, you know, do weird stuff. Like, I mean, that's what, it's that element of doomerism that I just, I... Well, there's I, no repercussions it, to our actions. No, action. absolutely reject. And we a, can do what and we want. A, exactly. And also an abdication of responsibility yeah. to other people, right? A really weird survivalist aspect to it, which isn't there in the deep adaptation movement. And in fact, as you know, Emil, I, I found a lot in gems in those three hours that can that I've applied to my own life. Hmm. Um, I just think, and I think that can be taught over time. I just know the limitations of the ability to be able to get that accepted more broadly. And so, I think one of the difficulties that um, you know, one of the things that we've done in the work that I'm doing. Um, in Australia is we've segmented the Australian population according to how they feel about climate change. And one of the things that's really interesting about two of those segments, quite small segments, but really telling about the extent to which the deep adaptation message can be 
can be applied more broadly to the community. And one group um, are completely disengaged from climate change, just don't want to hear about it, don't want to talk about it. You couldn't even talk to them about any of these things they don't want to talk, they don't mm. want to engage with, they don't want to engage with politics. These, this group of people is about 6% of the Australian population, 70% of them are women on low incomes who work part-time, who have children and have to care for older people. Mm. So they're so utterly over... I mean, ironically, they're probably the people who are going to do, you know, in Australia, wor- worse off mm. with a cl- in a climate-altered society. But they're just already so overwhelmed. So the resistance to the kind of messages of... of Jem, of Jem Bendel's work is going to be quite extreme. And so for me, I would rather find ways to think about how to lift them up in other ways rather than talk about climate change. And the other group, which in a sense is a bit of a, um, I worry about this group getting bigger and they might find actually the deep adaptation message really attractive, is a group we call the ALERT. It's about 6% of the population. It skews towards younger me- younger men. And these are people who are significantly concerned about climate change, but their main their main feeling is despair and they've kind of given up. And when you put the question in front of them, is it too late to do anything about climate change, 50% of them say yes. We might as well just give it up. We might as well just focus on trying to just get ready for whatever's coming. And one of the hallmarks of this group is that even though they're extremely concerned about climate change, think it's affecting the world now and think it's affecting them and will affect their future. They're not active and it's quite hard to make them active. And one of their, and a lot of their activism is about resistance. I'm not going to have children or I'm not going to do, I'd rather not vote. And so what I worry about is if that group gets bigger without the kinds of really quite sophisticated tools that Alan's talking about, I think that we're headed for more social disruption than not. So it's a balancing act. Can I can I bring it back, Rebecca, for a sec, just to ask you, what is your roadmap, your, your emotional roadmap to to action? You know, you, you really go through in your book in such a beautiful yeah. way a whole range of emotions. What are the difficult ones? What are the ones that are pitfalls? <laughs> Which are the wrong turns? What are the right turns? So I think that the the... Every single emotion is useful, and I want to talk a minute about the importance of balancing gain and loss with different audiences to get them to engage with climate change. But I've long thought that the most disruptive, the most um, unproductive emotion is shame. Hmm. Um, so one of the one of the mistakes, and I always say mistakes of the climate movement because it, you know I don't want to be critical at all because. They've got the hardest, literally one of the hardest jobs in the world. Um, and so I don't want to be critical at all. But one of the problems about climate messaging that makes people feel personally ashamed for what they're doing, not not guilty or not kind of like, you know, because guilt can be useful. For example, in Australia, one of the problems about some of the um, campaigns around coal mining communities is it's made those communities feel as if, they are their product, as if they are dirty like coal, or they should be ashamed that they're in the industry, or they should be ashamed that coal built their community. Mm. And that's the that's the main message you get that they actually hear that question of shame. Mm. And when they're already beleaguered communities, that doesn't work. So I don't think shame works. I think everything else can work, but in balance. Right. So I've seen fear work extremely well in already alarmed groups. And in Australia, one in four people are alarmed. So get and so I suppose making them more fear more be more fearful may itself be problematic. They're already pretty fearful. <laughs> what we've got to get them to do is balance those fears. I've seen other groups just completely respond really badly to anything that makes them fearful. Not to loss though, if you can kind of mobilize their concern around loss, it works. And I've seen in the business community, fear doesn't work, but loss of money works. If mm. you say if you say that not acting on climate change means you lose customers or you lose money or you lose the ability to kind of, you know, make more money, then um, that works too. So mm. loss works. Fear can be effective, but only in very small bits with people who aren't already pretty fearful. So that's generally what I found. And, but what, and what about some of the more positive, I mean, you do try to steer us to some of the more positive emotions of hope and love as, as, as ways yeah. to move us to action. Look, I think, I think hope is overrated. Right. <laughs> so this is why Alan and I would agree. 
I think what really matters is love. Um, and by the love, I mean care and value, what you value in your in your life. And I suppose my concern is is that if we is that one of the and I think Alan's exactly right that the really kind of useful messages of deep adaptation, some of that usefulness and some of that core philosophy, which I think is so important, can get lost when it gets disseminated because then it does attract that kind of oh why the hell are you trying. Um, which is not really what the message is, which then makes people start to close in and it starts to make people think that by protecting the things that I love and value, I have to basically like build a wall around me rather than do what deep adaptation talks about, which is build stronger community links, not turn in. Hmm. And the, the tendency of human beings to bunker down when feeling threatened and blame other people is pretty pretty famous. Alan, what do you what do you what do you think about what Rebecca's saying here? I, I'm I'm finding this really interesting uh, and you know it's very helpful to hear someone who's looked in that degree of depth at what different emotions can can do for different segments of the population. So I'm I'm finding this yeah very useful. Um curious of course as to how much this difference between the um the, the famously bolshy Australian mentality and the much more kind of lukewarm British mentality. Yeah. Half Australian, half Italian, Alan. It's a terrible combination. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you, Alan, you know, we're in a culture that, that does value power, values agency, um, the belief that if we have power, you know, we can solve our problems. But what about powerlessness what about despair i mean jem calls us to face head on the 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 you know genuine despair and hopelessness that mm. comes from the recognition of uh, a world that's going to be very different um yeah. and that that actually is a path forward what's the value of despair that's a really good question i mean i've i've led a lot of personal development workshops um over probably 20 years and what i found in those is that um very often there's a, you know, in a weekend group, there's a point where people do hit despair. And the value for me of despair is it's where you drop the way you've constructed the world to try and make sense of it and keep yourself safe. And, and frankly, that framework of how you try and interpret the world, keep yourself safe, usually has a lot of illusions and a lot of denial in it. So by dropping the despair, it's, it's almost like you're, you're facing the world full on. Um, you've dropped your framework and you're saying, oh, shit. Well, what what is really going on here? So it's the ability, it's the potential to see things like they are and to reconstruct a response to the actuality. I think what Rebecca said about, you know, people tending to bunker down in their own little individual reality is, is very true. And to me, part of the value of despair is that I think that's the sort of strength of emotion that it may need to get us out of thinking that if we just bunker down and put another lock on our door, we're going to be all right. We're not. You know, we we are actually going to have to reach out and look at things like, you know, supporting our neighbours, growing food together, you know, how we communicate in emergencies, all the rest of it. Yeah, and I guess, the, you know, it's where you get to once you pop the bubble of denial and you have to go through a sense of despair, I guess. Lloyd, I'm going to ask you a question here, which you're not expecting, and we can edit this out if you if you choose not to respond. Um <laughs> But I want to ask you something about despair and, and hopelessness and helplessness because, you know, you had stage four cancer and, and you built a physical and metaphorical war room to combat it and you fought it and you won and you've admitted to me, confidentially, of course, um, that you find sadness and grief, very hard emotions to sit with. So do you think in retrospect you missed out on an opportunity for the growth and transformation that comes from staying down low with despair or or it was something you needed to do to get yourself out of the hole? I disagree with, with Rebecca slightly that, you know, love is is key. I think without hope, uh, you, you can't even get to love sometimes. So, um, you know, hope is what keeps you alive um, and it keeps you focused and it keeps you purposeful. Um I do think, and it's interesting to Alan's point, I think in not facing my sadness, and I, I tend to move away from sadness. I prefer probably in a similar way to Rebecca, I'm much more orientated to action and, and, and being a warrior and, 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 and trying to engage in leadership and mobilization. I mean, that's a lot of my history. 
um, I think I've lost a lot in on 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 reflection about myself uh, and who I am. I think you know, uh, without sadness, uh, it's it's hard to without sitting still. It's hard to see who you are uh, mm. when you're busy. Uh, it, it's it's easier to see who other people are and what you need to do. So, uh, in the sense of 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 deep reflection rather than deep adaptation, I probably missed out uh, quite substantively. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think action is is a, a mechanism to manage your anxiety. And obviously, facing into death as as I was with my stage four cancer, action was easier for me. Uh, it just it just was easier, bearing in mind my personality. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Now. I know Rebecca has a question, a follow up, as you're the now the uh, the, the patient. <laughs> so I was thinking a lot about cancer as I was beginning to engage with climate change because my mum had my mum had stage three breast cancer, and I knew enough from my other friends who had cancer that when you're actually going through treatment, there's a lot to do, right? You're totally focused on treatment. And then once, if you're lucky enough to go into remission, that's when that emotional stuff hits you. It's almost like your brain is taken up with dealing with the immediate nature of the drugs and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the safety of remission have all my friends and my mother as well went through this enormous emotional, psychological, philosophical process. And when I was thinking about it in terms of climate change because when it happened and when I thought this is this is real, you know, this is if I'm going to take all the scientific documents at face value, which as, as somebody who's got a PhD, I have to believe these people aren't lying to me. They can't all be colluding and lying regardless of what um, Donald Trump and other um, people think. Um, there is no safe space. There's no place to go. And so I need to learn a new skill of not of processing the sadness and despair knowing that I'm not going to be safe because mm. most of the time we do we kind of like we're lucky in 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 countries like us where something can happen a sickness can happen or whatever and after it when we've recovered we get to process the emotions and actually well, that, we have to do this all at the same time yes well that is the tricky thing here is that there seems it's it's not like an illness which might have a a first act, second act, and hopefully a third act. Mm. But this is all at the at the same time. Can we do both, uh, Rebecca? I want to ask both you and Alan. Do you think we can do both, or is it like Jem suggested? You know, th- you know, there's a limited amount of energy, and you need to work out what's a sensible place to put your energy. Mm. You can't be going through the transformative process that takes despair to get you to it. Mm. Um, whilst, uh, you know, the other half of the day you're on the phone convincing new technologies to, you know, to put more money into R&D to solve the problem. This is our chance to step up. All right, I've got to hope that we will step up rather than we, we have to do both. fall back. Alan, do you think we can? Yeah. Jem is very much advocating doing both and so am I. And I think that the, the essence of it is actually living with despair, you know, living with it and acting with it. Um, and acting with it both to mitigate and fight climate change and change the system and to adapt to the disruptions that are already happening. Great, great. Well, I'm I'm just going to ask one more question and then I'm going to hand over to Lloyd. This is a a question for you, Rebecca. I mean, it's sort of a a personally motivated one, my views on the subject, that a lot of the green movement seems to smuggle in this this whole worldview of anti-capitalism and anti-consumption, along with a lot of really genuine science on climate change and many on the progressive left I know seem to sort of actually relish being able to say to society almost they they want to say you see you can't just consume and think you're gods nature's bigger than you'll ever be and you have to bow down to its power and stop the hubris of consumption which is killing the earth and I know we need to have respect for the physical limits of systems of course natural systems but we also know that those limits continue to surprise us why can't we just invent our way out of this and aim, even if we have to maybe consume less for a small amount of time, but aim for a future still of unlimited consumption fueled by carbon-friendly technologies. Why does it have to become this, you know, anti-consumption um, ideology? Or am I just buying into my own techno-utopia here? <laughs> um yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I'll say two things about that. The first thing is is that you're absolutely right. One of the things that can be a problem with the progressive left's 
frame around climate is that they embed in that a whole lot of, and we have to dismantle racism, sexism, you know, um, all these other kinds of, um, uh, you know, uh, all these other kinds of causes that I've got to say, if we do manage to get out of most of this mess and create a livable world, will be probably there in the future as well, I mm. think. In a sense, it's e- it may be easier to decarbonise um, the world than to decolonise the world. Mm. Um, it's been, we've been trying to decolonise the world for a long time. We've got a long way to go. So I think what's clear is when we put those messages in front of people who are of a different political mindset, what they do is they throw the whole thing out. Mm. So um, I've tested in Australia lots of kind of Green New Deal and, you know, um, and put them, some people love them, some people hate them. So you're absolutely right. Um, I think, but that being said, what is also clear is that when I present a world where where the only thing that's changed is the CO2 in the atmosphere and the way we produce energy, a lot of people say to me, in fact, it was just said to me last week when I was talking about, you know, trying to paint a picture of a zero carbon economy and what they would look that would look like and green hydrogen and all the rest of it some guy said to me so it's just the same white dudes making money from solar energy who used to make money from you know mm, <laughs> gas mm. and cotton I'm like yeah <laughs> and and he said well what's going to happen is when we have renewable energy they're going to find a way to make money out of us so there is this kind of you know that we I don't think that we can pile a million progressive issues into the climate change issue but I also think we do want to find a way to emerge stronger and for and and we do have to think about that it isn't just an energy transition. It has to be something a little bit more. How yeah. we sell that is another question. I'm not but. entirely sure I agree, but I, you know, because I don't quite see how consumption is inextricably linked to this issue. You can consume in ways that, you know, don't warm the planet, but, you know, it, 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 I think different stories, different narratives appeal to different people. Lloyd, having heard all of this, what do you make of it? Do you have I, any... I loved the conversation just about when Alan spoke about the concept of relinquishment. What do we need to give up, I think, was is, is the focus of deep adaptation. It's not just, you know, what do we value, which is partly of, as I understand, resilience. But relinquishment is is what do we value that we have to give up? And what do we have to stop doing? And I think that's a question we often don't look at. So I thought that was that was quite fascinating. And 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 Rebecca's comments around persuasion, which is is an area, you know, obviously, you know, behavioral economics and Daniel Kahneman and and how we persuade people and bias has been going on for 40, 50 years now. There's pretty much substantive research, but I think Rebecca, you know, just the your focus on what skills do we need and the concept of shame, which I hadn't thought of, but you know, when you shame people, it's different to guilt. Guilt is, I think, a an emotion where you feel bad about what you've done. Shame is when you feel bad about who you are. And so when people tell people that they are bad because they pollute and and they terrible. Nobody wants to feel shamed, mm. and so they just stop listening. And I think Rebecca's concept there was 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 quite fascinating. Wonderful, thanks, Lloyd. Well, why don't you take us uh, on to chapter two, where we sort of focus in on the principle of charity itself? Brilliant, thank you, Emil. Um, so, so chapter two is much more focused on the concept of the principle of charity, where we're trying to understand, you know, not just how you got to your views, but but potentially. How do you open your mind up to alternative views? Not that you should change your mind if you don't believe you should, but part of the principle of charity is about seeking the truth and, and, and also trying to just open your mind to the alternative. So, you know, on that basis, let, let me throw out maybe a question to you, Alan, I'll, and I'll start. And if, if both of you could be as, as brief, because we'd love to get through some questions on this. But what do you think the two, you know, maybe the two or three strongest points of Rebecca's argument? I think uh, a strong point is that there are certainly some people, we can debate how many, but there are some people who really can't cope with the full bleakness of the climate outlook and for whom hearing about it is going to be unproductive. So I think that that's a crucial point. Um, 
one of the things that um, I took out of, I think it was in Rebecca's book. I'm not sure she said it yet in this podcast, but she quoted Per Espen Stockness, who I rate very highly, saying a plurality of stories is needed for different groups of people. And mm. I think that's pretty crucial, that mm. the importance of stories and, and the idea that actually you are going to need to look at different motivations. Mm. And I think the way that Rebecca talks about the, the motivating effect of different emotions and the different attitudes of different subgroups, I find is extremely helpful. Mm. Great. Thanks, Alan. Rebecca, l- let me turn the question to you. Uh, two or three key strong points, you know, uh, of, of Alan's that, you know, w- when you look at that argument and the deep adaptation argument and Alan, Alan's writings, what, what, where do you think the strength lies there? Well, I, I look, I like that, that what Alan's done is he's taken most of what Jem is talking about. He hasn't let the kind of, there's going to be a social collapse in 10 years, did not make him realise that there's an enormous amount in the work that he's doing and that Jem's doing that kind of overlap. But this notion of relinquishment is really important. And mm. in fact, prior to getting involved in um, in climate change work, I've often been thinking about the kind of the paucity of the notion of sacrifice in mm. our society. Mm. I mean, once upon a time through world wars and crises, we had leaders talk up and get up and talk about the the kind of the noble art of sacrifice and that that could be lots of people just to saying, look, we just don't, we just can't have what we want now because there's a larger public effort, which is fighting a war or doing whatever. And affluence, particularly in Australia, we just don't really know what sacrifice is. We think sacrifice is only going on one overseas holiday a year. Or in Australia, we've got these, I mean, because we are so extraordinarily affluent, we think sacrifice is giving up tax breaks for our investment properties. I mean, we we have absolutely no idea about what sacrifice is. Mm. And so finding a way, finding a a hope a, a useful way and often can't come from the mouth of politicians or other community leaders to talk about what are we prepared to give up mm. to keep the things that we love. Mm-hmm. And we have to begin to find a way to talk about this and really in the end the only really thing that came out of the book, the kind of thing that I'm thinking about is how do we balance loss and gain in how we talk to people about how we deal with mm. climate change? Right. We just can't think that we can gain and keep things without losing. And how do we balance that and how do we frame that for different people? Mm. So that mm-hmm. relinquishment point is just beautifully made by mm. Alan. Fantastic. You know, part of the principle of charity is that it's sort of you know, both a, a deep philosophical uh, stance, but equally a, a deep scientific stance. And part of it, you know, I think of great science is 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 the ability to doubt, the ability to review. And on that note, uh, Alan, let me let me let me turn to you. Um, what's the one area of your argument or deep the deep adaptation movement that you're less certain about that you think is the weakest? I, I think for me, it is definitely the, this issue about societal collapse, Lloyd. I, I, it really irritates me, frankly, because it, I think it's an excessively strong statement. Mm-hmm. And for an academic like Jem to fail to validate such a strong statement, I, I think is a major weakness. Uh, mm-hmm. And it creates a lot of uncertainty because it means you know people like me who share a lot of what Jem's saying also have to qualify and say, but there's also a serious flaw in the argument at the moment. I see. Can I just test something with you? Was that, and I don't know the reason, and I may have got this wrong. As I understand, his paper was rejected uh, on on a peer review basis. Is that one of the reasons why it was rejected for in, in the journal? Uh, I don't know the the reasons why it was rejected, Lloyd. Um, it could well be. I mean, I think in general, it was that the peer review felt that he was going beyond normal academic disciplines. I see. And, and, and this is actually part of the whole point. He was saying part of the problem with people like the IPCC is that scientists trained tend to make them very, very conservative, and therefore mm-hmm. they don't talk about the emotional impact. They think that's in, unacademic, whereas mm. he's saying the emotional impact is central here. Mm. Okay. Rebecca, how about you? What, what do you think your, your your the weakest position of your argument is around you know fighting climate change or persuading people? Look, the weakest position around my argument is also a personal weakness. Is that I think people may be better than they actually are. Hmm. <laughs> so at the heart of this is 
oh, look, if, if like, we've got to be able to pull this out of, you know what I mean? We've got to be able to pull ourselves back from the abyss and mm. not turn on each other and not think it's more important that I have, you know, a big house and do all the things I want to do rather than save the planet for the future. I mean, that, that's the heart of it is that have I judged the human race wrong? Mm. And, and and I just, and because of just who I am as like wide as a human being, I realised that that is the fatal flaw of the argument mm. and the fatal flaw in me. Mm. But then I also go, well, I'd rather live thinking that <laughs> thinking mm. that most of the, that that fifty one percent of the time my fellow men and women will do the right thing. All we need mm. is fifty one percent. That's mm. the that's the flaw. That's mm. the flaw. Mm. Mm. Okay. Eleanor, I wanted to ask you a question, maybe in relation to to Rebecca's argument and or her orientation. And although Rebecca says, uh, she, you know, she believes in love more than hope, my my gut would be is actually Rebecca's probably one of the more hopeful people around. Uh, otherwise, she wouldn't be fighting so much and 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 trying to change. But I mean, I can't remember if if it's one of your blogs that you wrote, but I think you spoke about. Um, or, or, or somebody from the deep adaptation uh, movement spoke about, you know, you wouldn't give hope to somebody uh, who, who, was, who had, you know, terminal cancer, for example, and was dying. And that, that would just be naive um, when, when you look at the situation. I mean, do you think Rebecca's naive? No, I, I certainly don't think that she's naive. I feel like she may be undervaluing some of the benefit of facing despair and fear, and I was quite struck when she said something like 25% of Australians are alarmed, and and if you're alarmed, then actually that's a spur for motivation. So to me, mm. I'm thinking, well, all right, so maybe 25% of Australians are up for deep adaptation. Mm. Damn. Mm. <laughs> Rebecca, what's your response there, by the way? Uh, no, I think that's right. I think, but I think one of the things that there are two things that I'm worried about. One of the things that is happening in Australia is that we're having more and more people who've previously been concerned about climate change becoming alarmed, but not the rest of the community becoming concerned. So what we're having is a kind of polarization. So more and more and more people getting anxious and other people kind of bunkering down. So it's mm. that polarisation that really worries me. Like mm. I'm glad that the alarms are getting bigger, but I'm worried that there is another shift. Mm. And I suppose one of the things I'm particularly worried about for the alarmed group is that their main emotional response to climate change at the moment is frustration mm. but i can see if things get worse and if we and and if and if the climate movement in particular doesn't provide them with the emotional and mental support to to manage what's coming down the pipeline in the next 10 years mm. we're mm. going to start to get some much more kind of negative terrifying you know you know they're going to be whipped up and that's right. my concern so in the context of alarm rebecca um i suppose you know, alarmed as I understand, sort of people in in your models start to take action. Is that is that right? I mean, yeah. So they're the most active group. They're the um, most active group. Yeah, so, the most active. You know, eighty percent of them are doing some are doing a, a right. range of different activities. Yeah, um, yeah. Not just kind of recycling, yeah. but a whole. And they're prepared to do more. And that's the thing. I mean, you compare that to the alert, yeah. who if feel exactly the same way as them on a whole range of issues, but think we've left it too late and they're not doing things. So, and in fact, the potential to get them to do things like, for example, vote yes. based on climate is pretty low. They yeah. won't do it because I don't think that anyone's listening. And it's, that worries me. One thing I'd like to put in here is that deep adaptation is very definitely not a sort of evangelical movement. There's there's no kind of drive within deep adaptation at all that I've seen. It's sort of thing. my God, we've got to go out and spread this word elsewhere. So there's campaigning, you know, the support for things like Extinction mm. Rebellion. But a lot of what I'm getting on with is is at a practical level trying to get people in my community of, yeah. of all different spectrums involved in something very tangible like food security. Yeah. And, and I'm naming this because I find if, you know, everybody does know that climate change is going on. So when I say to people in the street down here, um, you know, if we can grow more of our own food locally, it protects us against climate change. They actually don't say that's rubbish. They they get it. And I'm naming all that because I, I think that the more tangible you can make it, a bit like Rebecca was talking about, you know, when you talk to people about their income being under threat, most of them get interested. Mm. I, frankly, mm. I think one of the ways through this is to start at really basic survival issues 
mm. and relate them to climate change. And, and you don't have to make the case about climate change because people know about that, frankly. Mm. Mm. I mean, what I think deep adaptation groups can do is provide a home and a supportive network for people that have found their way into that moment of despair. And that's mm. better than, you know, basically like, yeah, basically shivering in a corner, you know, um, just thinking there's nothing I can do. Mm. And I think that those groups, frankly, are going to grow. I thought one of the interesting things that came out of both of the conversation that you were having with Emil um, was about the concept of truth. Uh, it was pretty early on in the conversation. And and I think, Rebecca, you you sort of mentioned that, you know, on reflection on, on your history and your work is is mm. – is truth does not always work. Uh, people people reject it. They um, and Alan, your view was that people actually want to hear the truth. Um, and and of course, you know, it is key to the principle of charity that that you 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 try and seek the truth, not win the fight, which is which is a core, which is part of the philosophy of of the principle of charity. But I suppose I get to the to to my orientation, Alan is probably to agree with Rebecca, I think uh, if people don't feel that solutions work for them, they reject the facts. Um, you know, unless you tell somebody something practical that works for them, that they will reject the fact that that maybe, you know, the world is warming. Uh, I mean, wh- why? I'm intrigued why you believe so much that the truth works around persuasion. It certainly works around science, but does it always work around persuasion? I, I don't think we're ever going to resolve this one, Lloyd. Uh, the truth about climate change does work for some people. And I think probably what Rebecca said is quite fair, that um, for people who are hitting despair and looking for a constructive way out of it, mm. deep adaptation is a very good way to go. And I, I do think it's worth saying that deep adaptation is not trying to kind of broadcast despair. It's more saying, you know, if you're despairing and confused then here's a constructive way through it I mean I do I do feel a lot of the time when I'm working with clients to try and get people who aren't alarmed about climate change to do things I'm thinking what creative way can I tell people that everything's going to be okay what creative way can I lie to people that it's going to be okay Mm. to get Mm. them just to get them to recycle and like you know sign a petition Gemma's certainly been quite aware of this issue of does the, does the bad news, is it counterproductive? And, and two yes. things I just like to add in. One is that he was part of a group of over 500 scientists and academics who in December of last year signed a public letter saying people who care about environmental and humanitarian issues should not be discouraged from discussing the risk of societal disruption or collapse. Mm. Um, and also he, he set in hand a review of the, the academic literature. So at one of his blogs in February of this year um, was a review of the psychological research. And, you know, Rebecca may dispute this, but what, what that showed apparently was that bad news does not lead to apathy among the general population. Mm. So all mm. I can say is I, I don't think we'll ever resolve it, but he has certainly tried to look at it and look at what the evidence is to support the case of telling it like it is. Right. You know, listening carefully to the other person's point of view so that you fully understand it is, again, a key element of the principle of charity. I think both of you have demonstrated that uh, incredibly well today. But on reflection, when you look at your own style of communication, when you are engaged in argument with people who disagree with you, what do you think, if you could just maybe highlight... um, I think we all have this when when we reflect on ourselves uh, with respect to intellectual or scientific argument. What do you think you could be doing better? So I've thought about this a lot and a lot of this is very gendered. You know, when you're a woman, um, you have to spend an enormous amount of time, especially if you're an academic, if you're a doctor, somebody, and and maybe if you're a brunette, I don't know. You spend a lot of time smiling and trying to make people feel (laughs) <laughs> Women spend a lot of time smiling, trying to make people feel comfortable, right? Mm. Trying mm. to make them laugh, trying to be nice, trying mm. to be accessible, trying to be warm. Mm. And one of the things I re- I'm, I'm my many things about Greta Thunberg, but what I like is she doesn't give she doesn't give a flying fuck if people like her. Mm. She's just I, I quite like that. I think that's incredible for a young girl because women are so still so kind of 
told to be nice, constantly be nice. Be nice. Don't make anybody feel Mm. uncomfortable. Don't be a Cassandra. And she just doesn't care. And clearly she's motivated, like an entire generation of young men and women, but particularly women who just uh, just have no interest in being liked. Mm. Um, and and I like that. So that's good. So I I sometimes think perhaps I should could be angrier. Really? <laughs> but, but I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. Perhaps I could be angrier. I am pretty angry. Mm. I'm pretty angry. I mean, I'm 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 just careful about who I direct that anger to. I mean, mm. my view is that the people who are really stopping effective action on climate change in Australia could be fit could fit in the room behind me. There's not many of them. They're in mm. politics. They're in mm lobby, they're in parts of business and government, they're in the fossil fuel sector, they could fit Mm. into this house. Mm. So Mm. I'm really, really angry at them. But everybody else, my job is to try and understand why they feel the way they do. Mm. That's interesting, because I think uh, Dale Carnegie would probably disagree with you, right? Uh, He would. (laughs) And so would Jonathan Haidt in talking about moral persuasion. They would say the first thing you do is be decent and nice to people, yeah. uh, get them to like you as a person first before you even start to articulate the argument. Alan, let me hand over to you. We're going to start to close off soon. Um, yeah. What do you think you could do uh, in your movement to make people more charitable to you so that they listen to you more? Uh, I think that the Dale Carnegie point is actually quite relevant, frankly. Um, I think I and a lot of people in the deep adaptation do have a real passion about what we believe in. And, and there, although we're not out there kind of, you know, campaigning with it, mm. if you ask us about it, we'll, we'll kind of let rip pretty forcefully about what we see as the situation. Yeah. Um, part of what I take out of what Rebecca's saying is that if, if we had the, the patience to, to listen and draw out what the other person's concerns were and tailor our response to, to what they're feeling, you the the kind of way that Rebecca has in apparently you know very in in detail, I think that would help. So that that would be my response, Lloyd. Okay, fantastic. Um, one last thing, and then and I'll, I'll I'll ask Emil. I mean, you know, we've been speaking a lot about our views, and 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 we often are very confident in our views. And I always, what I love about the principle of charity is is the concept of reflection and doubt. Um. I can think when I ref- reflect on my own past how clear and confident I was in my position on many things, um, and and I've been proven incredibly wrong, uh, probably not thousands of times, but probably tens of thousands of times, but particularly on bigger issues. Rebecca, very quickly, what are one or two things that you've got wrong in your life? One really key thing that is that has become more and more important as I've gotten older I never really saw myself as somebody who was an environmentalist and that was entirely constructed Mm. around self-identity. I was a feminist and a labour person and not an environmentalist. Mm. I I didn't like Birkenstocks and I Mm. shaved under my arms. Therefore, Mm. I can't possibly be an environmentalist. Mm. And then I realised just how I underestimated the intense connection between human civilization and the natural world. And I just... And it was it, it's coming to an understanding of that through climate change that's been fundamental. And how could I not see that? That was just so such an intellectual peripheral recognition. And it now frames my whole life. Like I don't look any different. I still wear high heels <laughs> and I still shave under my arms. But it, a, a profound personal identity. And I realised that kind of sense of how I saw myself as a human, as a person, I wasn't an environmentalist mask me to that central truth and to come to a recognition of that as you get towards 50 is pretty embarrassing but yeah. I'm trying to instill it in my kids we'll see yeah. how we go no, I, I, I think I came from a similar position as a left-wing activist I just never took the green movement seriously I thought they were clouding the issue of class and uh, a number of other issues so I, I relate to that Alan very quickly from your point of view what, what do you think you've got wrong substantively as a belief I I thought for quite a long time, back in the 70s and 80s, when there was a period of idealism and the belief that the the scientific facts would would be enough, that Mm. that that would persuade politicians and business leaders and the public, oh, well, if that's what it is, and and it took a long time to realise how powerful and how hidden all all the lobbying from business in particular has been to undermine 
what I think was a very clear-cut case from decades ago. Right. Thank you to, so much to both of you. I thought that was a really fascinating conversation and incredibly charitable on all sides. Uh, thanks very much. And um, we hope uh, the audience got something great out of that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Alan. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.